The following sermon is brought to you by thepreachersvault.com, bringing old-time preaching to a new generation. So Philippians chapter 1, as, as you know, we've been studying this book. This will be the seventh week, uh, probably been nine or ten or twelve weeks since we actually started it, but actually seven weeks in examining the book. We've looked at several different sections already, verses 1 and 2. We looked at verses 3 through 11, although that took several different weeks. Uh, that was another section. We have also examined verses 12 through 18, and now we're in the midst of, right in the middle of at least, verses 19 through 26. And I've told you several different times about using punctuation as a tool as you're studying your Bible to try to help you to find those headings. Also, many of your Bibles, the printing of those translations at least, will have different, different means by which they can assist you with that. Maybe the first letter of a verse will be bold, maybe the number, uh, something of that sort. I think there's something called a drop cap, which is where you put a great big letter at the beginning. You may find that, but you can follow those. And at least as far as your initial studies, that can be an assistant as far as you looking for thoughts. And particularly when you're studying the scriptures, although I like to do verse by verse, phrase by phrase, and even at times word by word, uh, the best way to study it is probably to at least, as far as the thoughts go, look at it kind of what we would say paragraph by paragraph. And again, that can be difficult to find if you're not looking for it, but I think that is a good assistant in what we do. So we're in the middle of verses 19 through 26. If you want to begin reading with me there in verse 19, Paul said, For I know that this shall turn to my salvation through your prayer and the supply of the Spirit of Jesus Christ, according, verse 20, uh, to my earnest expectation and hope that in nothing I shall be ashamed, but that with all boldness as always, so now also Christ shall be magnified in my body, whether it be by life or by death. And I know we must have covered verse 19 at least to an extent last week, but I want to remind you of a few things. First of all, Paul said within the first three words of that, he said, for I know. And the idea of the word know there is I completely know. I've seen the evidence. I've seen the things that have been lined out in my life. And in essence, he's saying I've had it confirmed again and again and again. And keeping in mind that this book and what he's about to say, and especially in verses 21 through about 26, in talking about what a gain it has been just to live in, in the life of, that he lived in now is Christ. Of course, we all know the Apostle Paul always lived what you might call a godly life. He even said on one occasion that everything he had done up until that point in his life, he did not do that with guilt. He, he knew that he had done the best that he could. But now he's actually living for Christ and he's given his life up for Christ. And in essence, when he says, I know that, he's saying, I know that by my own personal experience. But he said, for I know, verse 19, that this shall turn to my salvation. And we discussed, I think on last week, a couple to three different perspectives about how you could view that word salvation. Uh, the meaning of the word is actually the idea of deliverance. And whether or not he was talking about his spiritual deliverance, which we know ultimately he would gain, uh, likewise we can. Whether or not he was talking about his physical deliverance, and he may have been talking very well about his uh, place of imprisonment, where he was there in Philippi, placed in, the or in Rome, 
placed into prison, writing back to the Philippian brethren. Obviously, he was not in a good situation. And he's basically stating in this verse that through your prayers and through the Spirit itself in Jesus Christ, I can gain deliverance from that. I think there's a tendency to understand that. A third way which you can apply that, I don't know if we mentioned it last week, perhaps we should, uh, but that is that Paul could have been talking about salvation slash deliverance as far as his personal vindication. Now, I'm not saying that Paul was out to get anybody and out for revenge or anything of that sort, but you and I know well that when we live our lives as Christians and we're persecuted and we're you know, uh, treated wrongly or, or done wrong, as we might say it, eventually, and God even explains this, that eventually he's the one that's going to have the revenge. Eventually, uh, the last word is not going to come from us. It's not going to come from us giving payback to anybody. It's going to come down from God. And I think there's a sense in which that is true, not only just examining this verse by itself, but when you get farther and farther down in the text, and he starts really talking about uh, how he, as well as those, those individuals he's involved with through faith and, and through their fellowship, about how he understands that the things that he is suffering, verse 29, he does it for the sake of Christ. And of course, the end result of that is Paul goes through the difficulties, the sufferings, the trials, the temptations, the persecution of this life, and ultimately, he receives reward for such. And ultimately, in that, we have to be reminded of things he said prior to this, basically, as we've said over and over, because he said the gospel is being furthered. And so when the people who are on the outside looking in see Paul, preceding verses, verses 13 and forward, and basically may ask, you know, Paul, what's happened to you? What's happened to the gospel? What's the outcome of this? He says the gospel's going to be spread. Uh, you're going to be bold, and we're all going to go to heaven together. It's going to be a joint effort in that. Yes, sir. Right, and he's he's waiting on the opportunity. He knows that opportunity. And he's taking advantage. It's seen up above uh, in teaching, actually, the guard itself in the palace, verse thirteen. So yes, he's taking those opportunities, and he's had uh, a number of years pass before he writes back to these brethren. So there's going to be a level through which vindication comes. And he says, verse 19, For I know that this shall turn to my salvation or deliverance through your prayer and uh, the supply of the Spirit of Jesus Christ. Now, verse number 20. He said, According to my earnest expectation. I know we started talking a little bit about this verse on last week. 
And, and I gave you the illustration of this word, and that is literally there. The word has, carries the idea or the picture of Paul or someone else craning their neck, sticking your neck out, looking around, investigating, and expecting, is the wording here, expecting something that is to come. And although it's very closely tied to the word hope, again, King James translation in the Greek, you see it as well. There are two variants of that word because he's saying not only is it the fact that I'm in general hoping, which we oftentimes define as desire plus expectation, he's saying there, I'm really, really looking for this. I really think this is going to be the case. Now, again, whether he's talking about his physical deliverance, getting out of prison, whether he's talking about his spiritual deliverance, getting out of life, getting into heaven, which I think is discussed before long in this text. Matter of fact, in the next verse, or whether he's talking about his deliverance or vindication from the hands of the evil that has come upon him, which again will be mentioned in a few moments as well in the text, still he finds or expects there to be deliverance. He says, expectation and my hope that in nothing I shall be ashamed, but with all boldness always Christ shall be magnified in my body. Now I was going back today and yesterday, but especially more this afternoon, looking back again and again and again at this text, and particularly continuing to focus on verse 20 through 22. And I kept seeing or kept wanting to, to you know, stand out to me that he points out that Christ is magnified, which we mentioned that word on last week, the idea that Christ is clearly seen in my body. And I thought about that, and I thought all the different ways, so to speak, that we might influence someone or have Christ to be magnified as an example to someone. And when I boiled it all down, I kept coming back to the fact that the only way, when you boil it down, the only way Christ can be magnified to anybody or manifested in front of anybody or glorified in front of anybody is going to be through our bodies because that's what they're going to see. And what they see is going to be their impression. And we may as well say it on the surface. Now, obviously, if they sit down and they begin to study their Bibles and they begin to gain their own knowledge and gain their own learning and they ultimately, hopefully, and prayerfully will become obedient to God, they're going to get something from these pages. But in the essence of it and in the beginnings, all the magnification that God's going to receive, all the manifestations, all the glorification that God receives comes from nowhere but in our bodies. And so I know it's easy to say in our minds, well, you know what? I may not have done this right, or I may not do that right, or you know, maybe I don't always come across in the right way, and I'm not taking away the grace of God and our ability to be forgiven or anything from that. But at the end of the day, at the end of the day, what we do toward others, toward the outside world, is their impression of God. What I do in my life, whether or not I say, well, I, you know, I, I don't always come across and I don't always, but in my heart, I love God. That very well could be true. But that love or that action or any of the characteristics that will ultimately cross the page, chapter 2, and the like-mindedness of Christ will never be seen by anyone save they see it in our bodies. So in essence, whatever level of faith, whatever level of trust, whatever level of religiosity, if that's the way you say that word, or anything else that anybody's going to see, it's going to have to come through their view 
of what I'm doing in my body. And that's what he says here. Christ is, shall be magnified in my body. And then he begins to tie the next section or the next couple of verses. And he says, whether it be by life or by death, they're going to see what they think about God through him, whether he lives or whether he dies. And we're going to talk more about that as we get a little bit farther down the page. Verse 22, or 21 he said, for to me, to live is Christ and to die is gain. Now, we mentioned this. I think everybody who teaches Scripture or studies it for themselves know this. We constantly remind ourselves, when you look down at the page, we, again, it's a tool they've given us. When you look down at the page in English translation, when you see those italicized words, you're seeing words that weren't necessarily in the Greek. They're there for clarification. They can be an assistant, but they weren't necessarily. Does anybody have those words italicized besides me? Probably there's several in there. What are they? Verse 21. For to me, what's the next word? To live is, is, is in there or not? Is it italicized or not? It's italicized. Now, I don't think it does any harm whatsoever, but as I looked at that today particularly, and I read across the verse, I thought, well, what would it sound like if I took out the italicized words, he says, for me, I skipped the word to right there, for me to live Christ to die gain. Now, I was thankful, and I've been more thankful in the last several months than I've ever been. May not have been the best thing at the time, but when I got to the ninth grade back in my day across the road, I had an option to sign a paper and say I wanted to stay on a consumer level of math and never take any advanced algebra, geometry, trigonometry, any of that stuff. I never had Coach Stevens in a class because I said I'll take it and leave it. Cameron's in the middle of geometry and whatever else you call this stuff, I don't understand it all. I say that to say this, it looks like a math problem in this paper. If you read it in that way, it's almost like Paul is giving you a one plus one is, is two type of equation when he said, again, to read it that way, for to me, or for to me, live Christ, die gain. Live is equal to Christ. Die is equal to gain. Yes, sir. right and if you plug it in both places right there for me to live equals Christ right for me to die equals gain that's right so to me to live equals Christ for me to die equals gain now the question come to my mind and as I again maybe I look into this I see more than I need to or whatever to think about the types of things that Paul was gaining along with Christ, and that he was gaining along with life. Well, he says the basics right here. For to me, to live is Christ, or to live equals to Christ. Does Christ give us a better life than we could have any other way? You can do this. Absolutely he does. As a matter of fact, Christ is described or, or describes himself as the way, the truth, and what's the third one in there? The life. That's exclusive. 
The only option. Christ says in illustration, this is in John chapter 10, he offers us an opportunity to have what? Life and to have it, that's life, more abundantly. Christ is our connection to life. Not any life, not a life, not some life, but the life that we ought to live. And so Paul, in, in illustrating that, and of course through inspiration writing that, in a sense he says right out of the gate, verse 21, for to me that's, that's living and that's Christ. I don't live for anything else. Paul said I don't have any other desires, any other hope. He's giving an exclusive idea right here, for to me to live is Christ, meaning I, I wouldn't even want to live if I couldn't live for Christ. Now, you say, well, how can we be sure of that? Well, many ways other than the fact that he said it, and that goes back all the way to chapter 1 and verse 1. By the way, you can look at all the letters of Paul and read his chapter 1, verse 1s, and you'll every time find him talking about himself being a servant. Himself talking about giving his life over to serve God. Now, like in this case, chapter 1 and verse 1, he not only puts himself in that same position, he adds Timothy in it. He mentions the fact that he and both Timothy as well are both servants of Christ or of Jesus Christ. And so that's what he has allowed to encompass the entirety of his life. Now, what does he really gain? For to me, live Christ, die, gain. On the one hand, if Paul is only talking about his own personal gain, what would ultimately he gain? Heaven. He would gain heaven. If exclusively he's talking about his own personal gain, of course, that gain, according to 2 Timothy chapter 4, verses 6 through 8, not unto me only, verse 8, but unto all them that love his appearing. The same gain, the same goal, the same ultimate accomplishment given to us would be heaven. But I think contextually again, it's possible to continue to include the subject matter of before and after this. Paul's gain is not just his gain. If he lives, he lives for Christ. But if he dies, he gains heaven. What does that do for anybody else? Personally, nothing. But what happens if he dies? The gospel gains. What he's been trying to accomplish, what he's been trying to deal with, and what he was talking about back over in verse 12, chapter 1, but I would that you should understand, brethren, that the things which happened to me have fallen out rather unto the furtherance of the gospel. And again, we've, we've used that illustration again and again that if somebody stands back and they say, well, look, you know, Paul's in prison, so apparently... What he was teaching or preaching or, or sharing with us wasn't right, or apparently there was something wrong with it, or apparently there was a problem in his life because he's in prison, so maybe, just maybe the gospel's not what it shook out to be. Somebody looking on the other hand says, wait a minute now. This fellow didn't get himself in prison because he was willing to shut his mouth. He got himself there because he wouldn't give up. And that would have been true about all the apostles 
uh, saved Paul in the immediacy of the resurrection that every time they were questioned, you know, did, you, did this guy actually live? Did he actually die? You know, are you positive he was resurrected? All those men would have said, oh, yeah, we, we, we saw it. Well, I'm going to take you into the city square and I'm going to beat you, you know, beat you till you can't breathe and, and we'll see what you think. But they do it and they get up and say, yeah, he's, he's still who he said he was. Their witness would continue to come back. What if Paul died? Ultimately, he will. Not here, but ultimately, he would die as a result of his preaching the gospel. What would that do? Well, I know for us today, 2,000 some odd years removed, it continues to enforce my confidence in the gospel. Because of all that Paul said and all that Paul stood for, so in some senses, as Paul gains, he would gain heaven, he would gain eternal life, so the gospel gains something from that as well. So to, for to me, to live is Christ and to die is gain. Now, as far as divine commentary, I usually don't flip or flop or hardly give reference. I want you to take, your, take and turn. You're in Philippians chapter 1. Turn back to Romans chapter 6. Go back to Romans chapter 6. Be very familiar once you get there. You can take your time, I hope that you would, and take your time and scan or, or read in detail the entirety of Romans chapter 6. But look in the beginning of this, what is said just straight out. Of course, Paul writing this by inspiration, so same author, same penman. Romans chapter 6, Paul says beginning in verse 1, What shall I say then? Shall we continue in sin that grace may abound? God forbid. How are we that are, what's the next word? Dead. Dead. To sin, what's the next word? Live any longer therein. Well, good question. No, you're not. There's so many of us as we're baptized, we're into Jesus Christ, we're baptized into his death. Therefore, we are buried with him in baptism into death, that like as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, even so we also should walk in newness of life. Verse 5, for if we have been planted together in the likeness of his death, we shall also in the likeness of his resurrection, which is again the coming again of life. Verse 6, knowing that this old man is crucified with him, representative death, that the body of sin might be destroyed. And henceforth, that we should not serve sin. For, for Verse 7, for he that is dead is free from sin. Now, if we be dead with Christ, we believe that we, should, that we also should live with him, knowing that Christ, being raised from the dead, died no more, and hath no more dominion over him. For in that he died, he died one, unto sin once, and in that he liveth, we liveth unto God. Likewise, verse 11, reckon ye also yourselves to be dead indeed unto sin, but alive unto God through Jesus Christ our Lord. Verse 12, Let not sin therefore reign in your mortal bodies that ye should obey him in the lust thereof. Neither yield your members as instruments of unrighteousness unto sin, but yield yourselves unto God for those are, that are alive from the dead and your members as instruments of righteousness unto God. For sin shall not have dominion over you, for ye are under the law and under grace, verse 15, what then? Shall we, shall we sin 
because we are not under the law, but under grace, God forbid. Know ye not to whom you yield yourselves servants to obey, his servants ye are to whom you obey, whether it be sin unto death or obedience, obedience unto righteousness. You can keep on going, keep on going. And time and time again, Paul contrasts sin and death basically with life and righteousness and gives us the option and the illustration of saying you've got to die to sin. You've got to die to yourself in order to live for or to live with Christ. And of course, there are other passages that show similar things, but I think that's kind of a divine commentary that would back up this small statement, chapter 1 and verse 21, Philippians, for me to live is Christ and to die is gain. He has to die to himself in order to gain. He has to live for Christ in order to have true life. Now verse 22. But if, this is a contrast, and if you see the word if, you can ask yourselves two questions. One, <coughs> excuse me, ask yourself, is if, if, a conditional if, and there are times that it is, most time it is, or is it a statement type if that means sense? So just ask yourself as you continue to see the word through the text because it's really going to get important. Chapter 2 and verse 1. He says, but if I live in the flesh, this is the fruit of my labors. Yet what shall I choose, I want not. For, verse 23, I am in a strait betwixt two. Having a desire to depart and be with Christ which is far better. Nevertheless, or in contrast, verse 24, I abide in the flesh, for it is more needful for you. So backing up to some of the details of verse 22, he says, if I live in the flesh, this is the fruit of my labors. What has Paul gained to himself, by himself, in the flesh? Maybe that's too tricky, because I don't know if I could answer it. <laughs> What is living the fleshly life given Paul? You take God, out of the, take God out of the picture, take Christ out of the equation, what has Paul gotten? He's gotten in prison, and he has nothing. He's been basically beaten, scourged, stoned, shipwrecked, left for dead. Again, that divine commentary talks about to the Corinthians. He, he's gotten nothing profitable out of life. Now, he has, he's accomplished in life. Uh, when he gives his pedigree, for example, uh, as he would, where is it? It's in here. It's in chapter 3. Finally, my brethren, rejoice in the Lord. I write unto you the same things. Mine indeed is not grievous, but to be safe. Beware of dogs, evil workers. Beware of the, the uh, concision. For we are of the circumcision and worship the God in the Spirit and rejoice in Christ. For I have no confidence in the flesh. Verse 3, he said, the flesh is not getting me anything. It's not gaining me anything. For though I might also have confidence in the flesh, if, if any other man thinketh that he has whereof that he might trust in the flesh, I'm more. He said, I, most likely if anybody were going to boast or brag or put their confidence in fleshly things, I could do it. Then he gives his entire pedigree of all the great things that has occurred, whether it be by birth or by relation or by education or anything. He had access. Yes, sir. He's, he's given up the prestige, being a member of Sanhedrin. He has given up wealth. Uh, he has 
privilege of being educated, uh, and he has given all that up, physical, monetary, and everything, to be able to serve God. So once he has turned from his uh, sin of uh, going out and trying to destroy the church, from there on, he has nothing. He has to be supported by these congregations. Right. And one of the major reasons why it could be, or at least is connected to the fact of how much he loves these brethren, because they are a supporter of him. But everything that he had, he said, verse 7, chapter 3, he counted for loss, he counted but done. So it was of no value to him. So in answering the question, what does the flesh give Paul? Nothing. The fruit of his labor, uh, as far as fleshly things, he's gained nothing from it, verse 22. He said, yet... What shall I choose and what not? So am I going to choose those things or what? Am I going to stay with you and continue in the flesh and be able to accomplish fleshly things? Now he's got God's assistance behind you. But am I going to continue in that or what if I just died? And then that's another one of those verses such as verse 22, for me to live as Christ and die as gain. Verse 23, he says, For I am in a strait betwixt two. Anybody's translation got some different wording, and I know that it does, in verse 23. For I am in a strait betwixt two. For I am hard-pressed. Hard-pressed. How would we translate that today? I'm in between a rock and a hard place. I don't know which way to go. And I've been in some rock and hard places in my life, emotionally, spiritually, even physically. Um, I've I've been in, in some positions in... You know, physically in life where you get kind of hemmed in, and I at least, I get claustrophobic, and I get antsy really fast. I want out. Paul's there. He says, I'm in a strait betwixt two. Literally, and that's, that's very, very good what we just stated there. Literally there, the word means I'm being crushed. Anybody ever got stuck in something? I looked at Andy because his job will get him hung up. I know Lamar's been stuck in a bad spot. Anybody ever been stuck in something, something fall on you? Uh, we've been in places like that. Uh, the house that we live in, the, uh, it was built in the early 60s, and so they didn't, I don't know what the thinking was, but nowadays uh, contractors and newer houses are very uh, attentive usually of crawl spaces. And they'll be sure your house is so many blocks off the ground, whether it be for drainage or whatever. But one thing is they know from now on somebody's going under that thing. Air conditioning, plumbing, whatever. We've got one that's low to the ground. And there's a spot under our house. And I've had to go under many, many times. There's a spot under our house where the only way to get to the other side, which is where all the plumbing runs down the back of the house, is I've got to not only crawl under the crawl space, I've got to go underneath an air conditioned duct. And once you get under it, you ain't no coming back. You got to get under it. And I've been under there and just, just lose my mind and lose my breath because you're thinking, I should have done this when I was, somebody was home besides me. Because you can't get out. And I've gotten out, obviously, I'm standing here. But that's the feeling that comes with this. And, and the decision Paul's making here, he says it. He says, for I'm in a straight Betwixt two. What's he, what's he thinking about? He says, having a desire, meaning if you ask me, here's what I do. Having a desire 
to depart and to be with Christ. And he says, that's far better. Which is far better. But what's, the, what's his other option? It's in the next verse. He said, verse 24, Nevertheless, I abide in the flesh. It's more needful for you. So Paul's options are, look, I could just die. And, and believe you me, Paul is in a position. Now, I have to back up before I say this and say, that, of course, God's providentially overlooking him and God may not be ready for Paul to die. Matter of fact, if, if God is not ready for Paul, God, God is not ready for Paul to die, he would have died. But I think Paul knows that in, in the most part, he's in a position, if he wants to die in prison, he can do it. He can, he can run his mouth just enough to the right person and he can go ahead and he can end all of this as far as you know his court appearances or whatever. He can go ahead and be executed. He can die. He has an option. And he says he's in a straight betwixt two. Because for him, that desire says to depart is far better. Now, the word depart is my favorite word in its original language. The Greek word, and again, I pronounce it the way anybody from Mumford would, not anybody from Greece. The Greek word is analusis. It's exactly the same word found in 1 Timothy chapter 4, verses 6 through 8, when Paul said, I'm now ready to be offered. The time of my departure, same English word as well, the time of my departure is at hand. Now, in Paul's uh, writing to Timothy, him saying that phrase I just quoted, I'm now ready to be offered. Paul says, I'm ready to be beheaded. I'm ready to have my blood spilled out. I'm ready to have my blood poured out like a cup, like a drink offering. And the time or the age of my departure is at hand. I won't go through all of them, but there are several. There are really five. In the original language, five senses in which that word analusis is used. Again, the same word that's found right here for depart. And the first way that's used is Paul uses that because to him, it's a soldier's word. A soldier, when they went out in the battle, and Paul would have known about soldiers. Of course, he was in Rome at the time, so he certainly knew about the Roman soldiers and their experiences. When a soldier would go out to battle... The thing he looked forward to absolutely the most was not just winning the battle, but going home. And if you've ever been in a military situation, been in a battle or known someone who was, many of you can remember your fathers or grandfathers in the same position, if not you, what did they want to do more than anything? They just wanted to get home. Whatever it took. If I've got to fight this battle and I've got to fight this battle and five more battles like it or ten more battles like it, if I can live through that, all I want to do is go home. Well, in their day, the word depart, analusis, literally was a word that meant to pull up stakes. It was the idea of a, someone in the military, a soldier, having his whole livelihood established on the battlefield and after a victory, he got news he was going home. And he's pulling up the stakes. In addition to that, this word analusis was oftentimes used as far as 
the same sense of someone who's going out to sea. Meaning that they've got the moors tied there on the, on the docks or whatever, and as their ship is being released, and the moors are being released, and the ship turns toward the sunset and begins to sail, the excitement and the joy that comes with them finally heading out on the seas and the beauty of it, they would cry out the word, I'm ready for Analusis, I'm ready to depart. Prisoners, Paul was one of them at the time of writing. Prisoner was used this same word, analusis, and it would be the word he would use as the prison bars would open and he would be headed home. More senses than that. It would have been used commonly in that day, but what the Apostle Paul says right here is, I'm ready to depart. Where's he ready to go? Or the same thing as home. In an ultimate sense, even more so, heaven equaled home. And he says, I'm ready, and I have a desire to depart. He specifically says, to be with Christ, which is far better. Now, verse 24. Nevertheless, to abide in the flesh is more needful for you. What does this tell us about Paul? tells us a lot, but the main thing I see in that very quickly is it tells me how much concern and love Paul had for fellow man. His ultimate goal and options were so close to being met and possibly being met within, within any time in the conditions he was in. And Paul said, look, the option given for heaven is great. I think it's the best option. To me, it would be the best option. But if I can abide here with you, that within itself is needful. I don't know if we could insert the same questions for ourselves, but I, I think that we could at least think it through. How valuable am I to this life? You know, we have value to our family, to our, you know, our spouses, to our children, to our parents to our uncles, brothers, cousins, cats, friends, dog. Some value there, but how valuable are we to the cause of Christ, am I to the cause of Christ in this life? Is there any need? Now, I think that ebbs and flows. I think our value in that uh, would, would ebb and flow, and I think at times, I know at times, we can be more influential to the cause of Christ and to giving Christ glory than we are at other times. Do we have value? And how is that value created? Well, for Paul, he understood and knew that his value was of some worth, at least, to them. At least in the moment it was to them. So just a question to ask. Nevertheless, to abide in the flesh is more needful. Verse 25. And having confidence that I know I shall abide and continue with you all for the furtherance and joy of faith. For the furtherance and joy of faith. How's Paul finding joy? 
Is he looking to his surroundings? Most likely not as much. Is he looking to his past? Well, not completely, although he had had some success for Christ. Overall, his life in a nutshell, look, we're in chapter 3. He tells us he counts all that but dung anyway. He actually tells us, and it's one of our more well-known, popular verses of verse of this whole book, in chapter 3 particularly, he said, I press toward the mark and the prize of the calling of Jesus Christ, of God in Christ Jesus. So he's looking more toward God. He's not looking as much as he would toward fellow man as he does God, but that doesn't take away the fact that he does look at fellow man. And he does find joy, but his joy is seated in God and found in Christ. It's for the furtherance of the gospel. Now look at the next verse to tie this. He says that, or you could say in that case, in order that's another way of translating that. That your rejoicing may be abundant in Jesus Christ for me by my coming to you again. What does Paul hope for the immediate future? He just said that. He said, for to me to live is Christ and die is gain. Understood. He says in, in, in joint uh, cooperation with that, verse 23 and 24, I'm going to wait for ticks too. I, I could die and be with God. I could stay here and be with you and I'd be profitable. It would be of some value, as a matter of fact, he believed if he stayed in, in, with him. But he says that your rejoicing may be abundant in Jesus Christ for coming to you again. So Paul has a plan. Paul has a, a goal in mind, and it's a goal that's short of heaven, but it's to return and to be assistive to them. So we'll pause right there. We'll come back next week.